welcome to PT Snacks Podcast. This is Casey, your host. And if you're tuning in for the very first time, welcome. This is a podcast meant for physical therapists who are looking to grow your fundamentals, but in bite-sized segments of time. Because we all only have so much time in the day and probably have lots and lots of questions. So today, the question we're asking is, what exactly is a cyclops lesion? And what does this have to do with our ACL patients who are losing their extension and we just cannot wrap our minds around why this is happening? So first, to answer what is Cyclops lesion, if you've not heard of this before, essentially this is just the fibrous nodule of granulation tissue that is most commonly in the anterolateral aspect of the tibial insertion site of the ACL graft. So that's a lot of words. Basically... It's just an arthrofibrosis that is in the front portion of the knee that can form just on its own that can cause a block to extension. It can, potentially. Not all are symptomatic, though, so some are symptomatic. And usually, these are hard in consistency, these nodules. And that's because they have a fibrocartinaginous tissue that could have active bone formation in the center, or it could be asymptomatic, which these would be soft and potentially fibrocartilaginous islands surrounded by granulation tissue. These can be pedunculated or non-pedunculated, which that's a really fun word that basically means this tissue can have a peduncle where it's connected or not. So if that's a new vocab word for you, you're welcome. Um, But then when do we see this? So it's called a cyclops lesion because that's, it kind of looks like a cyclops eyeball when you see it in a scope. In the clinic, you might see this in your patients who have a persistent loss of knee extension for more than two months, even after they've had aggressive therapy. So it's not even like they didn't show up. They've been sitting around with their knee just bent the whole time. It's more like, hey, no, they showed up from day one, but we cannot get their knee fully straight for whatever reason. So clinical signs that you might see in your patient who could have this would be pain with terminal knee extension. They might have crepitus, painful cracking. They might even have like a rubbery endpoint to extension with a palpable pop. Could have stiffness, residual laxity, Grinding with attempted extension beyond the patient's limit, joint line pain and tenderness, locking of the knee and discomfort with stairs. Essentially, their knee doesn't want to get straight, and it's probably because they've got some tissue that's in the way. So timeline-wise, if we're looking at patients who, when do they get this diagnosis, it's usually going to be made in 93% of patients within six months from surgery. But... 78% of these patients are going to have an extension loss within six weeks from surgery. So if you're having a patient like this right now, um, that's kind of like a timeline of when we're looking at, hey, what exactly is going on with this patient? So um, as I mentioned before, we usually see it anteriorly along the graft after an ACL reconstruction. It can occur in a few other places too, but Then the question is, why do we even see this? Why does this happen? Do they just grow this tissue and then we can't help it? And the answer is it's 
multifactorial and there's a lot of hypotheses out there on why that could be occurring in the first place and not really a concrete answer. So take these with a grain of salt, but things that have been quoted in research are, hey, maybe potentially there's cartilage and bone residue after tibial tunnel drilling that's left in the area. And then now the body is left to deal with the residue, right? They could have torn graft fibers or it could be from the native ACL stump. It might be repeated graft impingement, or maybe this patient has narrow intercondylar notches. Um, these are things that we see as more of like, okay, maybe the environment isn't the most optimal environment, and that lends to the knee developing something in response to an unhappy environment. That's essentially what we're talking about. And so Cyclops lesions are usually more associated with a more anteriorly placed tibial tunnel, or they could even have more disorganized mass of scar tissue in the anterior de- compartment. Risk factors that have been cited with this um, condition with Cyclops lesions are uh, female with potentially a more narrow notch. They could have an Patients who have an increased volume of graft compared to the notch size, bony avulsion of the ACL from the tibia, or of the ACL from the femur. As I mentioned, ACL placement of the tibial tunnel, a double bundle ACL reconstruction due to a higher volume of the graft, or bicruciate retaining arthroplasty because the ACL injury or because of ACL injury or sharp tibial bone island or a hamstring contracture. But a lot of these, the common theme is more of larger graft size in proportion to the area for which the graft to live in, essentially. So there are variants that are not necessarily cyclops lesion that kind of look like it, though. So in terms of like differentials, there are there's something called an inverted cyclops lesion. So... What happens is instead, it arises from the femoral notch instead of the tibia, which this is super rare. There's also cyclopoid lesions, which are fibroproliferative nodules that don't have any cartilage or bone. They're usually asymptomatic and don't really get in the way of extension. So maybe not something that you actually pick up with your patients. There's pseudocyclops lesions which are also very rare, and they mimic Cyclops, but there's no pathological features of it on imaging. Or something called gaudytophus, where monosodium urate crystals in inflammatory cells can cause this uh, similar irritation to the joint in this area, most commonly in the infrapatellar fat pad region. Again, not all that common. And also partial tear of the ACL graft can kind of mimic the same things as a cyclops lesion. So things to keep in mind, some are more likely than others. A lot of them, not likely at all. But now let's say we've got this patient, they're struggling with extension. We are concerned that maybe they're developing this because they have some risk factors that we know of or maybe don't know of. Then, well... Usually, you can pick up these things with imaging, but to get rid of it, you're probably just going to have to have another surgery for excision. The good thing is patients, after they have this procedure, have a pretty good prognosis, and the symptoms usually resolve in a few weeks, 
And the patient regains full range of motion, which is a win-win, right? Despite having to have another surgery. But a better question might be, how do we prevent it from happening in the first place? And a lot of the things that have been cited in literature are more so geared towards surgeon technique. So some things they mention are, hey, maybe we should delay an ACLR until after they recover their full range of motion. Um, or maybe we should go more of the minimally invasive surgery compared to an open procedure. Let's try and create less debris with a sequential reamer and remove the debris. Or, well, for one, let's just make correct tunnel positioning. Let's make sure the bone tunnel has debridement in and around it. Trial extension with a reamer or drill placed through the tibial tunnel to make sure it doesn't impinge within the notch. A notchplasty if associated with impingement of the ACL graft. Or even if it's possible, draw the graft from femoral tunnel first into the tibial tunnel to draw debris into the tibial tunnel. Early post-op mobilization is also quoted. And then for bicruciate retaining arthroplasty, selective fiber releases of the ACL rounding the edges of the tibia bone island and notchplasty. So there we have it, cyclops lesion. That's something that's not really commonly uh, talked about, I feel like, unless you are pretty specialized in this population, but something that's important for you to have on your radar in case your ACL patients are struggling with this. So if you have any questions, feel free to reach out at ptsnackspodcast at gmail.com. Or you can find me on Instagram at PT underscore snacks. I love hearing from you guys. It, it really does make my day when you guys reach out with questions. So anything I can help you with, definitely let me know. Uh, make sure that you subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And if you're in the need for some CEUs, look at the link, the link below in the show notes. MedBridge is offering a huge discount, 40% for PT Snacks listeners. If you use the promo code PT Snacks Podcast, basically a year subscription to thousands of CEU courses and webinars and in there's even a patient home exercise program component to where you can just piece together pictures, print it off for your patient or give them an access code where they can watch videos of exercises and know hey, they're going to do three sets of 15 or four sets of six or, you know, so on and so forth. I use this every day in my practice and absolutely love it. So definitely check that out. And if you don't need it, cool. No, it's on the table. So you guys have a great week and then I will see you next time. <laughs>